0: Welcome to the Malouli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 229. I'm Tom Malouli, and I'm here with my co-host, Brendan Malouli. And Brendan, you got some information you want to share about 401ks you've been reading about.
1: Yeah. Uh, so there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a week or two ago. I was talking about, well, the title was the case for revamping 401ks. And discussed in the article was just like the way that we incentivize people to use these accounts for retirement savings so you know the the primary benefit that is pitched to people for making contributions to these accounts is because you can exclude your contributions from taxable income i mean i think a lot of people just miss that basic point
0: like hey you know if you max out your contributions you're dropping your income your taxable income by 18 grand if you're under 50 and i mean 24 5 if you're a 50 or over person maxing out your contributions
1: it's pretty good it's good and and that's what the article said it's worked uh it's worked okay because yeah, i mean you could see obviously like average and median balances in in retirement accounts don't tell the whole story but they're not great you know you see some people who manage to save a pretty good amount of money in these accounts other people it doesn't really seem to be helping at why all is, why is that i'm not sure it's really just it's it's just about savings habits but uh, the idea this article was getting at was just talking about the exclusion of of income as an incentive and how it sounded good on paper, but like it hasn't totally done it. It hasn't done enough to get people to do anything, obviously. So just thinking about like incentives and and how they may or may not always work. they they sound good in theory. They don't really get people to do what you intend to do sometimes, or they have like a completely different effect. Uh, than than what was intended. I think the bigger issue may be, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the bigger issue may be that
0: people can't see that far into the future. And so there is no reward for them to have money taken out of their paycheck every pay period for a part of their life that's not going to happen for 15 or 20 or 30 years from now. And so it's like, why should I do that when I have other things I wanna do with the money? Like I wanna pay down debt or I wanna go on vacation or I have to pay my student loans. So I don't think people can look that far ahead. Most people can look that far ahead and say, I really should be socking money away for retirement. We haven't created that much of an incentive or painted an accurate picture for them to show them how they're going to be eating dog food if they continue at the pace they're going.
1: Totally agree. And that that is like the biggest hurdle. So we try to create these incentives to get people to see these things because left to their own devices, they don't. Not sure that the current incentive structure is, is working. This author suggested maybe something different because over the next five years, The government is going to give out basically a trillion dollars in incentives, meaning they're going to forego that much in taxable income by, like, letting people exclude it. So rather than an exclusion, the author just threw out there, like, what if instead of an exclusion, we gave people, like... A twenty-five percent credit, a tax credit, instead on on their contributions up to a certain amount, like eighteen five. So you would get four or five thousand dollars, something something in that ballpark. If you maxed out your account, you would get that in a tax credit because that's that's a little more valuable to people than just excluding eighteen grand of income. Now we have to put whipped cream on the ice cream. I mean, if we want people to do it, this is, I, I get that in a perfect world, people would just come to their senses and realize that if they don't save anything over the course of their career, that they're not going to have anything to live off of in retirement. But yeah. I didn't think it was such a crazy idea. I thought it was interesting. I don't know. I, I hope they'd come up with something. I, I think one of the things that they implemented in the last
0: 10 years is the auto enrollment. Some firms have the ability to, you know, as you get raises, you actually increase what your contributing. That's great. And the the numbers prove it, that more and more people are participating and they're participating to a greater extent. More and more money's going into these plants. They're going to need it. I just don't know any other way to get people to take care of themselves. It's like exercise and dieting. It's You have to take care of your future, your today's self to be around for the future and you're just screwing yourself if you're not putting some money away for retirement. I understand people, not everybody can do it. They don't make enough money
1: and their expenses are really high. I get it. One of the biggest points in this article was that, and I don't know that a tax credit fixes this, but like the exclusion of, of income as an incentive doesn't help the people who need the most incentive to do this. Yeah. People who I mean like 40% of people in this country probably pay no income taxes because that's the way the system is structured. Right. They don't pay any income taxes so who cares if they show less Oh, I can exclude 18,000 from my income. Like that might be all they make this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people outside of that 40%, like if you're making $50,000 a year, 60,000, it's not that much of an incentive to send money into a 401k because you're not, you're not getting like a a ton of taxes anyway. And it's not going to lower it by that much when you do the math to exclude whatever you can afford to put in there. And what, if you make 50 and you can exclude 10, like are you changing your tax bill that much at the end of the year by doing it? Well, wait a minute. I mean, we can probably do this on the back of an envelope now. You know, if you're a single
0: filer, you're going to, ha- you don't have an exemption anymore. You get a standard deduction, which is going to be $12,000. $12, you make 50000 You put ten grand into a 401k. Now your uh, income is 40000 now you take the personal exemption, now you're down to twenty eight thousand. What's the difference? I mean, it's gonna be some difference between In terms of like the what tax, tax bill due. Right. It
1: might be like I would imagine not more than a thousand dollars or something. Like that's yeah. not and, and then when you take that thousand and disperse it over their paycheck 26 right. twenty six times a year or whatever yeah. whatever it is, like do they notice? Does it matter? Not really, probably.
0: Maybe they should just tell people like when you put money into 401ks that uh, they're gonna get all the hot IPOs or I've... they're gonna get all the marijuana stocks.
1: Yeah. Uh, or the Bitcoin. Or right. Or something that's gonna really, you know. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, and I get your point. Like something that makes it more exciting. Like the exciting part about saving for your future, I guess, to some people, if there is an exciting part, would be the investing. But that's like, I think that's dangerous too, because then you're encouraging people to get like excited about investing their like 401k money. Because I think a pretty decent rule of thumb is that if you're like excited about putting money into an investment, that it's probably a terrible idea.
0: Right. It's tough because you don't have, I was going to say, you don't have 100% participation. You don't even have 80% participation. So it's hard to revamp these plans because you don't know. Even if they ripped up the way that these plans work and created tax credits or some other incentive to do it, what's going to make people, human beings, say, you know what? I'm going to start doing that. It's talking about changing behaviors. Hard to do. There's got to be some other way to do it. I mean, one discussion that we've had around the office is why is there a cap? Why is it just 18.5 that you can put on? Why can't you, you know, if you have the ability to put more into a 401k, we're not talking about a million dollars, but why can't they, you know, why can't you put 50,000 into it? If you make the money, why not? They ought to be able to say, hey, I'm going to take this next level contribution for 401ks. I know everybody gets this eighteen-five threshold, but if I go to 50,000,
1: I'll opt out of social security, give my social security check to somebody else, someone who really needs it. Yeah, the, there would have to be some kind of a balance because I think the reason that there is a cap is because the the people that it would serve, again, aren't the people that we're talking about here. Yeah. The ones who these incentives would be aimed at, the people who really need to take control of their future the most, I just, who have no retirement savings. Have you ever thought what life would be like if
0: we just didn't have 401ks and IRAs? I mean, stop for a second. Everybody talks about the good old days when people had pensions. You know, like, at most... We saw this number just recently. It was something less than 50%, like 46%
1: of workers 50 years ago had pensions. So... They weren't the good old days. Reminiscing about the good old days that never existed. That never existed. All of the time across all spectrums of life. The world was always better in our memories. Holy
0: holy (laughs) crap. I mean, you look at what some, the wreckage that people go through when they have an emergency and they got to take money out of their 401k retirement plan before 59 and a half because someone in their family is sick and they've got doctor bills and they are falling behind on their mortgage and they're going to lose their house. Okay. This is serious. Why do we even have some of these retirement plans? Why why can't people just save their own money? I mean, it's I know it's a rhetorical question. We'll have to have another podcast. We'll have to get some cannabis products in here or something and <laughs> talk about bigger issues, but we talk about the golden days in the 50s and 60s when everybody worked, at, you know, for GE and they had a or worked at the factory and they had a they had a pension. And you know they bought a house for $11,000 on Long Island. Everyone was happy. That's not true. That didn't happen. So it happened to less than half of the people that were working during that period 50 and 60 years ago. So we misremember things. Yeah. I just wonder sometimes gee, is it all worth it doing all these crazy all these crazy rules for IRAs and 401Ks and things like that. I Don't want to go off the deep end, but it's part of the reason why, you know, when you guys finished playing Little League, I got involved at the commissioner level for our district. And it was, okay, some kid got hit in a bat in the uh, on-deck circle. Okay, everybody has to wear helmets. And then someone got hit when someone was swinging a bat. Okay, no bats in the on-deck circle. Then it was, you can't use this size bat. Then it was, you know, there was a rule for everything. And we just keep legislating more and more things. Let's make IRAs, let's make Roth IRAs, let's expand the 401ks. You're not gonna change people's behavior. Just save money.
1: having rules and just not having any rules because I don't think the opposite end of the spectrum works either where you just leave everybody on their own because we won't do that. Like if we don't try to incentivize or maybe even like force people to save for retirement through, forced meaning like social security or pension and incentivized meaning IRA or 401k or whatever it may be if we don't do any of that the behavior doesn't change or it gets worse because now there's no incentive at all so now literally nobody is doing it instead of just like most of the people then what happens when like people can't cover costs when they're like do we just let them die in the streets like is that a thing because at some point we all feel responsible and we have like humanity and we help other people. So if we're going to help them out anyway, then like, why not try to like do something about it now and help them out? I don't want
0: to go off the deep end because I know that this is a business podcast, but that's actually where the church used to come in and help people when they were really in need. And all of that's going away,
1: legislated away. Brendan, I know you wanted to talk about the bond apocalypse. Yeah, so good post from John Reckenthaler uh, this week. At Morningstar. Morningstar, right. right. Um, So he he talked about how in 2010, the 10-year fell from 3.8% to 2.5%. And that's really when uh, talks began to intensify about a potential bond bubble. So since then, we've seen the 10-year hover between 1.5% and probably where it sits today, I think close to 3.1%. Right, right? Like we added a single decimal, one-tenth one of one percent higher than three. Now,
0: the part of the reason why they were talking about this bond bubble was because the countries in the Eurozone were still in a recession. They, they were taking a much longer time than the United States to come out. We came out of the recession in mid-2009, 2010. A lot of these countries were still having trouble. In 2011, we saw uh, the Greece problem— Uh, They started lowering rates or continued to lower rates in the Eurozone and then they actually started talking about negative interest rates for the first time ever in the Eurozone. So even a 10-year at 1.5% seemed like a sexy deal because it was a positive
1: yield. Mm. And that's why we saw a lot of money come
0: rushing into these
1: treasuries. Yeah, right. We saw after the recession, we saw calls for things like hyperinflation right. because of things like quantitative easing and the lowering of interest rates, and that never came to fruition. So John was basically saying, and I, I really love the way that he put this, that the even even if bonds collapse tomorrow, uh, the statute of limitations has expired. Like Those people were wrong, and they were wrong for eight years, yeah. and uh, along the way in that, not... Not that this is like a binary decision because investors, obviously, you know, now in hindsight, since 2010 would have been uh, pretty well served in the market too. But most people put together some kind of a mix in their portfolio of stocks and bonds. Um, And the bond side would have been just fine when we were calling for doom and gloom. So 2010, this is the aggregate bond index. 2010, up 6%. 2011, up 7.5%. 2012 up four percent, 2013 down two percent. Okay, so all th- through,
0: through these years, they were looking for bonds to get destroyed. Yeah, a bubble.
1: I think a bubble implies like like great pain. Yeah. Obviously, maybe a bond bubble um, is less than a stock bubble, but calling something a bubble means people are going to lose their shirts in it. Right. 2013 down two percent, 2014 up half a percent, uh, 2015 up half a percent uh 2016 up two and a half percent 2017 up three and a half percent this year so far down what like one one and a half percent one and a half right right yeah good article from john and and one of the points that he made in there was that the quote unquote smart money so people in our line of work uh and investment professionals were the ones calling for the bond bubble not mom and pop investors cuz everyone likes to joke about you know the, uh, the, the average dumb money, the dumb yeah, money yeah. The, these dumb people who kept piling their money into bonds and bond funds over the course of the last 8 years and did just fine yeah uh, whereas we have professionals who maybe are getting too wrapped up in the details or whatever narrative they're trying to spin and clearly wrong
0: you know in this period this last 8 or 10 years I think the lesson really has been for investors, you know, with yields at levels where you need a microscope to see them. uh, They're so small. You're not really buying bonds for income, are you? You really, I mean, you want to buy bonds and hold them in your account for some kind of uh, bumper or diversification.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's funny that you say that because another good post from, from Morningstar over the last couple of weeks, I, I agree with your point, by the way, is from uh, Ben Johnson, and he talks about the different kinds of bonds and how some of them are better diversifiers than others. So you're talking about low low yields on bonds. We've seen that over the last eight years, but some bonds yield more than others. Right. Um, and, and you might think all, all bonds are equal here, so conventional wisdom says... Stocks and bonds, they're not perfectly correlated, so uh, it's you know two two asset classes that people like to pair together uh, for reasons of di- diversification. Um, but it depends is the answer because depending on what kind of bonds you put in your portfolio, they may or may not act as the buffer that you describe when when stocks are taken taking a downturn. Well, I think a good example of that would probably be
0: probably probably be high yield bonds, Um, you know, these junk bonds, these are corporate bonds that are issued with some pretty high, higher than average rates. In our experience, we found that they tend to move like stocks.
1: So it's tough because I'm sure there have been, will be in the future, people out there who want to be in something like bonds because they have heard that they are uh, less risky than stocks, which is generally true. But then at the same time, we'll look at bonds and say, ah, this one yields more than that one. Why don't I put my money here? If they don't really know what they're doing, that may not be the strategy they want to go with because they're going to get not stock like volatility, but but not super far off either. And that's kind of what Ben looks at in this article. Um, he looks at correlations between the Russell 3000 index and different types of bonds so m- meaning he wants to see how how well they uh, move you know in line with one another okay high yield bonds a perfect correlation is when something is 1 1 is the way that they score a perfect correlation meaning they move exactly in step with one another high yield bonds are 0.73 correlated to the Russell 3000 index which is you know the broad spectrum of US stocks across mid caps and small caps and large caps. Uh, so you're not really getting to anything there. No. And you could find you could find another equity piece. You could find like international stocks are probably 0.73 correlated to US stocks. <laughs> you're going to get
0: you basically what you're saying is you're going to get about the same kind of
1: risk yeah. that comes with it uh, with the returns that you're getting. Yeah. And and so to speak to that during uh, 2008, 2009, the biggest drawdown on the Russell 3000 reached 51 uh, percent during during that time period, and high yield bonds were down 33 percent. Right, so you're not getting much there. I mean, you still got whacked. Yeah. Um, whereas you know these correlations too, they're not they're not exactly static as as Ben alludes to. So even even things like treasuries at their worst during 2008-2009 were off but they were off like 4%. Right. You know and they and they finished up the year of 2008 up and depending on where you were um out the spectrum of uh you know the duration of the bond portfolio you could have been up as much as I think long-term bonds in 2008 were up like 15-20%. But the the biggest risks for bonds are basically the credit risk which is what we're we're speaking about which is you know, how likely are these bond issuers to pay back the money right. that, that they've been loaned, which is essentially you're you're a loaner when, when you own bonds. Um, how likely are they to pay you back? More likely being things like treasuries from the US government and less likely being bonds issued by, you know, companies that are suspect with crummy looking balance sheets or in a poor every, history. And every ninety days they're reporting earnings and you know, you kinda get a trend from there. Yeah. Or duration risk, meaning, you know, how long are you loaning the money for? Um, and, and so what what Ben has seen uh, lately, with, with inflows at least, has been that people are looking for high-quality bonds, and they're taking, like, little, t- little or no duration risk. So we're also seeing the same kind of things, a
0: fractured market, so to speak, with municipals, because now some municipalities are more riskier than others. Right. State of New Jersey good example it used to be you know these um turnpike bonds used to be triple a rated fantastic now state of new jersey bonds are all getting marked down mm-hmm. state of illinois same thing so you got to be really selective when you're making investment decisions
1: on municipals on corporates really anywhere you want to know the exposure you're getting so obviously if you're buying an individual bond i mean do you do your homework on whatever the corporation or municipality is. Um, if, you, if you put money into a bond mutual fund or an ETF, look at the exposures, see what kind of credit ratings the portfolio has overall and how much in each category and you know the duration of the portfolio is going to have a big impact um, in terms of if interest rates continue rising, uh, things with longer duration are, are going to be affected more than ones with shorter duration good stuff. As a friend of the firm would say,
0: fascinating. (laughs) All right, that's going to do it for episode 229. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next episode.